This show is proudly sponsored by Coinspot.com.au, with the largest range of cryptocurrencies anywhere in the Australian market. With an updated verification process, you can now be verified using only your driver's license or passport within seconds. You can instantly deposit funds and instantly start buying and selling your favorite cryptocurrencies in under five minutes. Coinspot are giving away $10 worth of free Bitcoin for each verified user once they make their first deposit. Just go to coinspot.com.au forward slash BTC123. The Trader Cobb Crypto Show, talking business in blockchain. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Trader Cobb Crypto Show. Today's guest has a bit of a history. He's worked for some different tokens and he's created his own business that he's working on now. We're going to talk about both of those. He's a man from a technology background who understands coding, which is totally alien to me. We've got Jet Yep, Yap, sorry, who runs Scratch Cash and was the CEO of Can Your Token. Thanks for being on the show, mate. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. All right, let's kick off and talk a little bit about your newest venture, which is Scratch Cash. Now, it's got a very catchy name. So um, tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, Scratch Cash is uh, sort of an idea that I've had about uh, two years, two and a half years ago. Um, and obviously, this was when I was you know, going into a lot of meetups and uh, talking mm. to a lot of people, telling them about how great you know, like Bitcoin is and why everyone should have you know, some Bitcoin in their wallet. Um, and you know, there, there were some occasions where people were actually interested and then, you know, they asked me, you know, how should I get some? Uh, and I said, Oh, um, you gotta go and start an uh, account and an exchange and, you know, like, uh, go through some of these processes, which I can share with you. Um, and then people just sort of get turned off at that point. Mm. Yeah. So that was what really inspired me to, uh, sort of create this. So, uh, I think in July or August last year, you know, I, uh, when I came out of Kenya, I decided to just really, um, you know, do this full time and, you know, just was sort of like just scratching an itch, you know, and hence where the name came from as well. Scratch cash, you know, works. Yeah. And, uh, so how it is, how it works is that it's basically like a, a gift card, you know, it's a 50 or hundred dollar gift card and, uh, you can, you can buy it from like retailers, uh, that, uh, you know, sort of stock the scratch cash cards. And uh, you would just uh, take the card, you would scratch off the panel at the back, which would expose a QR code. And all you have to do is just download the app uh, on the Android uh, Play Store or the uh, Apple App Store. And uh, from that point on, you can just um, follow the prompts on the screen. And you know, within about uh, three to five clicks, you would get um, the coin in your wallet, provided that you already have a, uh, an existing wallet. So um, it's a service, it's not a wallet. Okay. Well, all this, honestly, all this talking of scratch is actually literally maybe itchy, which is really weird. Um, okay, cool. So the, what's the end goal for, I mean, what's, what does success look for, what does success look like for you and scratch cash? Uh, so the intention really is to uh, allow people to, you know, sort of buy into crypto in, in a more sort of like, uh, piecemeal, you know, like, uh, and you can sort of just share it around with your friends. A gift card, right? Yeah, it's just a gift card. Um, so ideally, the point is, I really wanted to, you know, sort of share the idea about crypto. And a, a lot of the education journey is really getting people to just use it to just, you know, sort of have a feel and touch and mm -hmm. understand it. Because, um, you know, technology is, is, is unlike a physical product, right? So like, you know, for people to really understand it, you know, like, 
they'll have to either download an app, you know, and then they go through the notions and then they, they get this aha moment like, oh, I see what you mean now. And then that's when, you know, that, uh, that you know, that's when they sort of understand what it means, you know, or, or why they should be having some of this. Okay. So, um, I mean, look, on this project, you talk about retailers. How's that going? How are you going with rolling out to, across retailers? Obviously, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and it's relatively new. But, I mean, how many retailers have you got? And sort of what, what's your aim for, uh, for 2019 retail-wise? Uh, so, at the end of this year, ideally, we'd like to uh, reach out to, you know, about 200 merchants in Australia. Uh, at this moment, we are still sort of working out the uh, regulatory requirements because, um, I mean, obviously that would also impact onto the, uh, the development of the app itself. So in the event that we have to do, you know, like this KYC checks where we have to identify everyone who's on the platform, then, you know, we'll have to work out a way to sort of make that, you know, kind of seamless within the app itself. So um, hence, once that's all sorted out, then, you know, we would look at uh, expanding our sort of... Uh, merchant retail network um, so by the end of the year i hope to get at least about 200 merchants on board with this idea. so what's the what's the maximum you can put on a card uh at this moment we have sort of limited it to about a hundred uh mm -hmm. and for good reasons i mean like hundred dollars is sort of the point where you know people are sort of comfortable to spend and it's not mm. too uh too big uh, and then if it's like, you know, too small, then, you know, the, the amount of crypto that you get in your wallet is probably not going to be too appealing. So, you know, they, $100 is sort of like a sweet spot. So does that mean it's a bit less of a regulatory hurdle? And I say this because of, you know, pay pass. Anything below $100, you don't need a pen. So because there's smaller denominations, is it such an issue around the regulation side of it? Because, I mean, if you want to be a money launderer and you want to be legal activities, you're not moving money at $100 at a time. Yeah, that, that is quite true. So like um, what I personally think is that, uh, you know, the, the risk of money laundering is fairly low. Uh, that said, you know, uh, we have rules in Australia and uh, there are three different bodies that, you know, have uh, an overview or, or an oversight of, you know, cryptocurrency at mm. this point. Um, and also I was in, in one of these conversations with uh, Treasury yesterday, um, from, you know, for about four hours, uh, I did a submission to uh, Treasury around some of my thoughts, you know, in, in the industry and uh, uh, sort of got invited to uh, attend this roundtable, which was really engaging. You know, I was kind of surprised, actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to hear that that's actually conversations are being had at that level, which is fantastic to hear. All right. Cool. So where, where do people find out more about Scratch Cash before we go into the world of ICOs? Uh, so we have a website. It's uh, www.scratch.cash. Um, so you can find us there. Check it out there. It's not quite Christmas. As a matter of fact, we are a long way from Christmas, but there's a gift idea for you, ladies and gentlemen. For those that are too lazy to put any more thought into a gift, we just found you one. <laughs> All right. Now, I want to go into the CFO role that you had at Kenya because um, there's a lot to talk about in, in, in this space. Um, obviously, Kenya did an ICO. And um, you've written some pieces and done some bits and pieces about uh, treasury management. Now, as the CFO, I'm sure that you're probably much in control of that. So first question is this, what did Kenya raise when they went out to market? Um, so we sort of targeted to raise about uh, 10,000 ether, you know, and this was really, I think, uh, in quarter four last, uh, in 2017. Uh, so, you know, we had a sort of like a three month period where, you know, we, we had a, where we went through looking for uh, private investors or mm. 
and we're reaching out with private networks and then like sort of once we were ready with uh, you know all of the the telegram and you know the uh, marketing it's it's quite a lot of work man i never really anticipated that you know um doing an icu is actually very very uh, time intensive and uh it's it takes a takes up a lot of attention as well um yeah. and then by then we sort of like uh managed to actually raise about at that time it was about 10 um you know million australian dollars uh you know because at that time the ETH price i think was about a thousand eight hundred so at its peak we you're talking about 14 million dollars worth of ETH, and of course you know it should take time because effectively you're taking people's money so there's a lot of work that needs to go into that i mean i work from a traditional background in, in in stock shares and trading and um there's a lot of regulation which the ICA market didn't and still doesn't have really at the moment so yeah there's a lot of work to go into and and there really should be so from those heady heights i mean what did you get out of them i mean the for me there's a logical process in business okay like if, if i go and raise and let's say if i was to do an ico right now and let's say i raised 10 million dollars of eth at a you know a, during a very strong period for that token now for me and i've seen this i've seen this process not be followed more times than I have seen it followed. And I'm keen to hear your interest on this, but um, I mean, for me, I'd look at that and go, okay, well, how many years do we need realistically based on our cost base, based on scaling? And you do the macro picture, let's say three years to get to market, to get the exposure you need, and then to really turn a revenue to be able to give back to these token holders. Maybe because, you know, tokens are not, you know, they're not really tied into the equity of the company, but you get my point. So, if you've got to, if you say to yourself, right, I've got to run, I need a runway of three years. And that goes for maybe, maybe year one, it's a million dollars. Maybe year two, it's three million. Year three, it's another three million or whatever it may be. Once your milestones start to get hit around creating real true revenue so the business can support itself. So did you guys do that? Did you get to the point where you went, right, okay, we need to sell, you know, at this price, we need to close out and move to US dollar or dollar tether or however the hell you want to look at it. We need to move $5 million across to give us that runway. Um, we did have a look at that uh, immediately after we finished the ICO. Um, that said, at that time, you know, the, uh, the challenge was actually the, um, the off-ramps, right? Um, so we, we had a bank account, uh, but we, we, we were kind of fearful that if we were to move a large sum of money into a bank account, you know, we would get our bank accounts closed. Right. Uh, as a result of that, so we pretty much had a, um, healthy amount of uh, cash in our banks um, but it was not to the point where you know we liquidated say like you know 80 percent of our um, treasury and moved it into fiat um, it was really due to the fact that we were uncertain around um, how the banks would treat that and uh, as much as you know like from my point of view when i did the uh, kyc i'm quite comfortable around you know the uh, the whole process and uh, the identities of the people we, we've collected them. We actually use a third party as well. So uh, we did this like, you know, sanction checks, you know, like potentially exposed persons and, you know, like all of it was all right. Um, but we didn't know how the bank would actually take it, you know. So if the banks, you know, they just say, sorry, man, we don't feel comfortable with that. Then, you know, then we would have ended up in a situation where, you know, we, we would have all the cash frozen. So as a result of that, we probably only um, liquidated about 20% of okay. uh, the cash at that time. Yep. And did you split it across multiple bank accounts? Because I know that uh, some of the big four here in, in Australia in particular, uh, during that hype that was when you basically, when you raised, they were shutting down accounts, they were, they were halting accounts. And it's disgusting. I mean, I look, 
it's my money. I'll do what I want with it. You know what I mean? Like I don't understand that. And I find that to be a, a very, very, very like banks should have control to a certain extent, but not of my money. I can do what I want with it, especially if there's KYC in place where I can prove this is not the far east dealings. This is just the way the new world is moving. So the, the banks did shut a lot of that down. Now what we did as a business is we, we were shut down as well through a payment gateway. Um, we opened up several different accounts. Did you guys go through the same process? So effectively, instead of dropping $2 million, uh, into one bank account and going, please, please, please let it work. Uh, you split that over across, say, four bank accounts. And we started to target the smaller banks because we saw that they didn't have the market share and they're probably more lenient towards keeping a client as opposed to some of the big four where they saw the risk being harder and, and they're like a cruise ship. They, they take a very long time to turn. Is that the sort of process you guys went through as well? Uh, so at that time, you know, we didn't really see this as a major issue. So we actually maintained one bank account with one bank. And actually for that period, we never really uh, got into any sort of uh, issues with the bank uh, service yeah. itself. So I guess that was, you know, one of the good things uh, for us in 2018. Uh, we never really had some banking challenges. I think for the most part, it was actually um, getting all of the transactions that actually happened. Um, from the ICO, you know, down to, you know, the day-to-day -day transaction and then, you know, getting that into a readable format to be able to prepare, uh, you know, the, the financial statements and the accounts was actually really, really challenging. I can imagine. I mean, uh, what we saw, the boom go through. Actually, the good thing about the boom that did occur on any liquidation is, of course, you need to pay tax on that as a business. But uh, it didn't, like, it, the market had come back significantly within that tax year. So that you could actually, it wasn't such a bad thing. Like, if the boom had have happened between sort of April and July, um, you know, you'd be liable for, for quite a tax bill. But it, did, it had come off quite significantly by that time. What I find interesting, though, is that... Um, uh, the CEO, I think it is, of Kenya, I've forgotten his name, I, I, I do apologize. Um, he, he now talks about what not to do in ICOs. And I find that, I find that quite remarkable. Um, I mean, here, here he is with you know, $10 million worth of ETH and a very long runway. Now, I, I'm not criticizing, I'm just sort of thinking, you know, how, do the, how do the token holders feel about him going out and doing that, given the fact that, okay, you, know, you liquidated, let's, let's say you liquidated $2 million worth. I'm not sure what your burn rate was, but obviously the runway like significantly shortened as the price fell. How did you guys um, how did you guys get around that? And, and what was the what was the vibe within the offices at that moment in time? And you're the CFO. You're the one that had control of the keys to the castle, so to speak. Well, at least leadership. Sorry, opinion to the leadership. How did you guys get around that? Because it was getting pretty heavy for a while. Your 10 million went down to what, 5 million really quickly and then four and then three. And of course, you know, we've seen what ETH has done. How was that? How did you guys handle that? Did you have hedges against ETH? Did you scale out on the way down? Was there ways of which you could sort of see the writing on the wall and prolong um, your runway? Because of course, funding in business, whether it be through an ICO or through an investor, it's really important to be lean and mean. I think that's where a lot of ICOs have struggled, um, you know, to, to go and raise, it's kind of almost like a reverse business model, right? Uh, usually you build a business, you do a, you do a seed or an angel and you do a series ABC. If you get that far, most people don't get that far. They go in and they do a seed or an angel and, and they build and build and build. And very few actually go into a series A depending on the scale of the business and what they're actually trying to achieve with that. So effectively you raised a, you raised a series A or B in one go. 
Now, with that comes a lot of money. Now, we've seen, I've spoken to a lot of VCs in private equity and, and investors as well. And often they say that too much money, uh, too soon, can ruin the culture within the business and it doesn't make them as hungry. Did you see that at all? Was there any issues in there that, uh, you know, was there any massive parties where you're getting Snoop Dogg like Ripple was? Or were you pretty grounded throughout the whole process? And look, I'm asking this not to criticize. I'm asking this for some honesty to understand the inner workings of a CFO within an ICO that did raise to the tune of $10 million. Uh, so I'll give you my end of the story at least. Uh, so when the ICO actually launched on KuCoin, I was actually frantically trying to send 3,000 people their tokens so that they can go and trade on the market. Yep. Um, and in hindsight, I, I would have looked back and said that, you know, like uh, maybe what we should have done is we should have just went on a party for eight weeks because that would have just cooled off the market completely. <laughs> Instead, you know, here I was trying to, to send, you know, tokens to people and, you know, like, and then I watched the price just go plummeting down and it was, it was heartbreaking, man. It was like, you know, all of the goodwill that we've accumulated and then, you know, like as I send tokens out to people, I was, I sort of felt like, oh man, you know, these guys are just going to just drop this on Dump the it and crash it, you know? Mm. Um, but that's also part of the, uh, the ICO space itself. And for me at that time, the responsibility was, you know, we, we said we were going to commit giving people their tokens. So like if we didn't give them their tokens, then we fell short of our promise. Yeah. Uh, and so like, but once it goes out of our hands, you know, like I, I can't control the market, you know, I can't do anything about that. So like as, as a, personally vested uh, person as well. Like I've put in money into Kenya and I've only really pulled out, you know, money in like 9th of January this year. So I really stuck through, you know, the, the full year and yeah. I watched like, you know, 98% of my holdings just disappear in the thin air. So um, mm. yeah, I mean that, that sort of experience around the, 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 the whole market itself, I think um, caused a lot of uncertainty in, in terms Absolutely. of culture. Uh, within uh, Kenya itself. And obviously uh, me being in finance, I'm the most anxious one. And here I was, you know, trying to tell everyone, oh, we have to really start looking at generating revenue. Um, that said, you know, it was not easy for, you know, a, a young startup with, uh, you know, like a developing product uh, to really start going to gener uh, revenue generation mode, right? So, um, and there were also a lot of ideas that were being explored in order for, um, for the team to continue doing what they were doing. And, you know, there, there were some things that I guess, uh, some decisions that were taken around like March last, uh, last year was, you know, to, uh, set up a team in China. And at that time, you know, China still looked very bullish in terms of mm. like, you know, blockchain adoption. So, uh, you, you know, we thought that perhaps having, you know, um, someone on the ground would allow us to you know, have a better relationship with uh, the parties in China that were really pushing the agenda of blockchain. Now around May or June, that obviously, you know, like turned around and, you know, the government just went, uh, I don't think we want to sort of allow this thing to, to start too soon. You know, we want to, you know, sort of drill down and research on it a little bit. Uh, and that's when, you know, like obviously the whole market started to you know, cool off quite drastically. And uh, at that time also, we, we started looking at you know, cost cutting measures. So obviously with me being the CFO, you you're know, one I, of them. <laughs> I was the one that said, all right, like you're not going to send an example, you know, you know, so I'll sort of take a step up first and, you know, like I'm pass on the, the baton to someone else to try and man manage the development side of things. Because at that time I was not really, you know, doing much to offer my value, you know, I, I haven't really gotten into coding at that time yet. So, um, 
I was not able to really, you know, lend my perspective around, you know, coding and all that. So uh, that's why I just sort of like, you know, uh, departed around late July last year. So given your time again through that whole process, what would you do differently? Uh, if I had to do that all again, uh, I think the first thing is uh, we would have introduced a lock-in period for uh, yep. token holders. So that would have really curbed uh, speculation on day one. Uh, and it, once we curb that, then we wouldn't have so much noise on Telegram channels as well. So we could actually do work rather than, you know, spend four weeks trying to tell people, you know, like yeah. how the market works, you know. Um, and I think the next thing is uh, we would have um, probably taken out 80 or 90% of our money and, you know, save that in um, cold hard cash. Uh, at that time, I think, you know, we were still quite idealistic about, you know, the... Um, the whole idea of having uh, a new world, a new utopia, you know, and that uh, was, it was almost like a badge of honor. It was, it was almost seen as a bad thing to get out of your wreath and go to dollars, but you know what? Business is business, right? You've got to do what's right for the business. But I, I look, it's, and you're not the first to falter at that level. You know I mean? Mistakes have been made across the board. It's I've seen it time and time again. And especially, and I'm not, I'm not saying this directly at you. I'm talking about it broadly. You, know, you give a bunch of young guys and girls $10 million that have very little business and treasury management experience um, and market experience. I think that's the bit that was le- lacking. You can have business experience, but if, as soon as that greed comes in, and it's, when I say greed, it's, it's, it's an emotion of the what if. If we sell now and it goes to 3000 how are we going to feel? That market exposure, understanding that things don't go up forever and you need to hedge your bets and you need to get out and you need to scale out and you need to manage what's going on underneath. During that hype cycle, a lot of people, A, had never been through it before. They'd never been through a market cycle. They'd never been trading shares or foreign exchange or commodities or bonds. They weren't used to market cycles. And of course, with that hype, it kept inflating, 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 inflating. And everyone thought it was going to go on forever. Someone like me, it was pretty clear it wasn't. Uh, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with it. I mean, I've carried 13 years of experience trading markets and that's what I do, right? That's what I do. I, I'm not out there, you know, coding. I'm not out there doing ICO. So it's a different world for me. I look at markets and I, I know what they do. I've seen it enough times to understand that. And I think that the biggest learning through that ICO experience was exactly that. It's about understanding market cycles. Now, one more question that I have for you. The ICO market has cooled off. We are seeing much more... I suppose, uh, you know, much more offerings that have a lot more gray hair in the team. Yeah. So proper businesses, businessmen, businesswomen coming in with, with, with corporate experience uh, and, and entering into the market. So there's still some very good projects coming out. There are fewer and far between. You can still raise through an ICO. Do you think the STO is going to make somewhat the ICO redundant? I do not think so. I think that there is um, a couple of uh, distinctions between, you know, say uh, a utility token and also a security token. Uh, particularly, I guess from a, a security point of view, you, you know, we, we look at it and um, for most people, they either look at, you know, um, a business that uh, they will have um, some sort of equity in. Uh, if not, you know, a business that would generate ongoing dividends, you know, to basically, you know, feed them a return on investment, right? Yeah. Um, And in the case of a utility, what I noticed uh, last year was that uh, a lot of people that went out and and did marketing were a little bit uh, over the top, you know, with with, uh, the claim, right? And because of the claims, uh, you know, your average person on the street, uh, they can't really discern whether that is a 
a legitimate claim or not, and they basically buy in a, as a sort of Impression a based of you know an influencer mm. or you know they read an article on Reddit and then they decided to you know put in a substantial amount of money into a project. Uh, now, obviously, I guess from that incident itself, even for me, I look and say that I said you know for this market to really mature. Um, you know, we have to put in things like fiduciary reporting, you know, uh, to, to be able to even put out the annual reports, uh, you know, like, for example, like the, the token, how, how, how much money was raised, you know, which were the wallets, you know, and that would, that would have been good practice. Uh, and we should be aiming towards a point where we can actually do that. And I mean, that's not going to really stop people from, say, taking the money and, you know, going out there and buying a new car with the money. But at least, you know, you can see that it's now published and you can see that, you know, on, on this day, there was a new car that was being bought, right? So yeah. that's just, I guess, from an investor point of view, you know, like, so I was wearing a few hats last year and one of the hats that I'm still wearing is as an investor into a crypto project, right? So with that hat, I look and say, you know, I would really love to see, you know, like some form of reports, right? Like a burn report or, you know, like... A, Give uh, me something, right? Give yeah, me, tell me what's up. Yeah, and um, I think that's where I look at the the, uh, the direction of this whole space going. Yeah. Uh, regardless of whether it's a security token offering, and if it was a security token offering, all of these things would have been mandated by you know the existing laws anyway. So the only area right now is that the utility token sector. You know how 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 are the um, the governments going to you know sort of like treat this area? Is it going to be sort of looked at with the same lens, which I think that will make uh, it very difficult for people to do like a utility token in Australia and it might stifle innovation here. Mm. Um, so I guess that's a decision that, you know, really needs to be taken into consideration by people sitting up there in, in, in government and in power at the moment. Um, though, I guess with utility tokens, it opens up a whole new ball game for, um, you know, like your average person on the street as well, because... Um, I look at utility tokens in a way, something similar to a Kickstarter program, right? Like Absolutely. If I want to buy a new pair of headphones. It costs $500 on retail. And right now we haven't done anything yet. So, you know, if you give us $100, we'll go and, you know, acquire a manufacturer and we can sell it to you at cost price, you know? So I think that's sort of the idea that I would have for utility tokens. So in a way, you know, I would sort of treat that money that I put into a project like that as a donation. I don't expect that project to sort of like, you know, turn uh, straight away and create a product. But you get I something mean, back. Yeah. But if it does, then, you know, it would be exciting because I would have gotten, you know, a revolutionary pair of headphones. So I look at it as the same concept. It's just that, you know, how do we sort of manage the risk so that we prevent, uh, I guess, the bad players from coming in and executing, you know, those market trades that really cause damage to the overall ecosystem. You know, yeah, absolutely. Mate. I, I hear you on that, and it's um, look, it's an ever-evolving space. It's a very new space, and um, you know, it's it's, it's something that um, look, there's so many changes constantly within us and within our you know crypto asset space. Let's call it uh, the STOs, the ICOs. The ICOs have hurt a lot of people, and and for that, there's uh, some very unscrupulous dealers out there. There's some pump and dump groups. There's all sorts of things that really get my back up. Uh, I've invested in two ICOs. These are my decisions, but I'm an investor. That's what I do. 
I'm, I'm an informed human being who understands the risk and I'm happy to take that. But for a lot of people out there, they were not. And they have been hurt. And a lot of these projects have been irresponsible. Now, I'm not relating this at all to Kenya. I'm just saying in general with ICOs, I think the STO market might bring with it a little bit more as there is regulation there. And it is an asset class that allows us to provide liquidity where liquidity was once not available. So I see it as a very positive space going forward. But look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, uh, speaking about your past experiences, your most recent project, which I'll remind everybody is Scratch Cash, which is scratch.cash.com.au. Yep, it's just scratch.cash. Scratch dot oh well very sneaky there you go scratch dot cash jet yep the CFO or CEO I suppose of scratch dot catch it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you thank you for your honesty and your openness to share some of your experiences with us and the audience thanks for having me Craig excellent guys ladies and gentlemen boys and girls have a fantastic day and I'll speak to you again very soon bye for now the Trader Cobb Crypto Podcast is hosted by Craig Cobb. All Trader Cobb courses, products, and tools can be found at tradercobb.com because experience matters. This show is proudly sponsored by coinspot.com.au with the largest range of cryptocurrencies anywhere in the Australian market. With an updated verification process, you can now be verified using only your driver's license or passport within seconds. You can instantly deposit funds and instantly start buying and selling your favorite cryptocurrencies in under five minutes. Coinspot are giving away $10 worth of free Bitcoin for each verified user once they make their first deposit. Just go to coinspot.com.au forward slash BTC123. Views are of the advertiser, not Trader Cobb or the audio presenter.